Hi, and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast of Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We're glad you've tuned in for today's sermon. My name is Ryan, and I'll be your host today. If you're listening to Stony Creek Radio for the first time, this series begins on episode 16. As we study Ecclesiastes together in this series, Chasing the Wind, we're going to be wrestling through some of life's biggest and most important questions. And our prayer is that we'll see together how God brings meaning to everything under the sun by means of His Son. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump right into today's sermon. All right, sticking around in here, let me invite you to open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I was planning on doing the whole chapter today, but instead I'm just sticking with the first seven verses. (laughs) This is getting worse and worse. But in my study this week, what I came to see was these seven verses are highly structured and They are serving in many ways as a mini conclusion to everything that we have looked at in the first four chapters. It's going to echo a lot of what we're going to find in chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12 is really that grand finale of Ecclesiastes. You can sneak ahead and see what it says. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7 is is a taste of that. It's echoes of that. And it's highly structured to the point where verse 1 serves as a bit of an umbrella statement. Verse 7 is kind of that bottom bracket, if you want to look at it like that. And then in the middle, there's three exhortations that are given along with the reasons why he gave those exhortations. So it's highly, highly structured. So I I wanted to kind of camp here for these seven verses to, to wrestle with this conclusion that we are coming to after the first four chapters that we've studied together. Now, most nights in our home, uh, in my home, one of the kids wakes up in the middle of the night. If not one, two. If not two, three. Not three, four. Not usually five anymore, but four sometimes. Not uncommon at all for that to happen. And oftentimes, the two of them in particular, Olivia and Trey, when they wake up, they want milk. And when Trey wants milk, he'll be very angry about it. Uh, he'll, he'll yell for milk, Dad, milk! And I know at that moment, I need to get up. I don't care if it's 3 a.m., 4 a.m. I need to get milk quick. And the reason I need to get milk quick is I go into his room and I'll say, Trey, I'll get you some milk. And then if I take more than 30 seconds to get milk, out of his room I will yell, he will yell, Dad, what's taking you so long? And he'll wake up all the kids in the house. At least not all the kids, some of the kids sometimes. So I know I have to boot it when he wants milk. And so he gets up and I, and I, get, I run down the stairs to get milk. I bring it back up, I give it to him. Well, because I'm moving so fast and trip, very true. Nighttime is dark, if you didn't know that already. It's dark at night. And sometimes I'm I'm moving quickly down the stairs and I'll step on things that have been left on the stairs or somewhere else. I've I've stepped on Lego before, like Lego type plastic pieces, broke the pieces. Uh, A ball one time where I almost lost my balance and fell. One time on the stairs, I slipped on a piece of clothing and fell down a couple of stairs in the middle of the night, and that was just last night. Um, (laughs) That's not, I'm just kidding about that, that's not true. 
<laughs> but I have stepped on all of those things, just not all happened last night. And the reason for this is I'm moving quickly and I'm not considering what it is that's in front of me. I'm just moving quickly. I'm not taking my time. I'm not evaluating. I'm not thinking through, okay, it's maybe not safe for me to do this. I got to really contemplate what I'm doing. Maybe flip on a light, something like that. Uh, there's been a, there was one time a few years ago where I was carrying Libby down the stairs and she was five years old at the time. That was just a couple of years ago then. And I remember we were walking down the stairs and about the third step down, I fell. And with her in my arms, and I fell down, I, I was able to kind of protect her, but then I fell and hurt my ankle bad, where my ankle started to swell up like the size of a small softball. Um, the reason for that was I had slipped on something on the stairs. I didn't see what was in front of me. So every time, the reason for me falling is me moving too quickly. It's me not being aware that... I need to consider my limitations. I should not have been carrying Libby down the stairs when I couldn't see the stairs I was stepping on. I need to be considering my limitations as I do this to properly consider what it was that I was walking on and walking into. And here in Ecclesiastes in chapter 5, this is what Solomon is going to say to us when he starts this whole section. He's going to say, guard your steps. Consider who it is of the presence, that, whose presence it is that you are walking into. Make sure you recognize that it's important we don't move too fast, that we slow down, that we examine ourselves and the path that we are on to consider and to weigh whose presence it is that we're walking into. So when you approach him, consider your limitations. Don't approach him carelessly, but approach him respectfully and reverently, aware of your limitations. And Solomon's going to share with us what it looks like to approach God in worship, in the right and in the proper way. So if you want to put an umbrella over all of this section, it's in the context of worship. And we're going to talk about what he means by these things that he says. But this umbrella of worship, he is now addressing for the first time directly the reader or the listener to Ecclesiastes. He's addressing you and me as the worshiper of God to say this is right worship. And it begs the question, why is chapter 5 after chapter 4 and after chapter 3? Because these, these chapters, it's important to remember that, the, that these chapters we're studying through were not written in a vacuum. They weren't written apart from everything else he said. He's building off of what he's talked about each week that we study it together. And chapter 5 is going to speak about worship. Why would he do that following chapter 4? And we saw last week the vanity of pursuing wealth and pursuing success and pursuing advancements and achievements. The vanity of that doesn't lead you to the place you want it to lead you. Talked about how sometimes people will take wealth and put it in the place of God when they want to make it ultimate things. They want to look to wealth and to money for that which is going to make them happy. And when we do that, the scriptures speak of that being idolatry. We're taking money, putting in the place of God, looking to money to give to us what only God can give to us. And so it's in the context of worshiping money, worshiping achievement. When we look at all of these things for our ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction, things like wealth, things like sex, things like achievement and success and working your way up the corporate ladder. When we 
look to those things for fulfillment, we're worshiping those things. And now Solomon is going to shift our attention after pointing out all of the false worship that we do that leads to the place where we don't want it to lead us. We think it's going to lead us somewhere else, but instead it leads us down a path that is completely meaningless. But when we approach God in the right way, this is where we find that happiness. So he's going to shift now from worship of wealth and worship of achievement in chapter 4 to worship of God and what that looks like in our lives. And when we put him in the right context, the right place in our lives, that's where we start to know fulfillment and lasting happiness. And that hole in your heart where something is, you know something's missing, that's how that is filled, is through a relationship with him and the proper worship and respect of God. So he exposes all of these empty pursuits that we look to to find happiness. And now he's going to shift our attention as the worshiper to the right way to worship, the right place to look to for happiness together, happiness in general. And when chapter four talked about wealth and success. And we spoke last week about how oftentimes that leads us to a place of only looking out for our own interests, leads us to a place of trampling whoever we want to trample to get our way to the top. And you know, many people that have got to the top that have worked their way up, they've trampled people along the way, not giving a rip about who they trample on the way. We talked about that person who, who can buy everyone in the restaurant a meal, but no one wants to sit with them and they don't want to sit with them anyway. And now we're going to see with the worship of God, the love of God in our hearts is going to lead us not to trample our neighbor, but to love our neighbor, to come alongside our neighbor and put their interests ahead of our own. Let's look at it together. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're looking at verses 1 to 7 today. It starts by saying this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, important to remember, this is in the context of temple worship. This is not in the context of New Testament church. So when Solomon says house of God, we can't just quickly make that jump from, okay, house of God, temple, to church today. We can't just draw a line like that. So what is he talking about when he's talking about the house of God? For the temple worshipers in the context of temple, to approaching the temple to worship, to guard your steps as you approach God. Uh, later on, it became the synagogue. And the synagogue is probably uh, the closest similarity to what we would have for church today. Much of what we do in church is patterned after what was done in the synagogue. So as you approach God in corporate worship, this is what you should do, guard your steps. So in one sense, to call this building a house of God is not entirely accurate, except when we are all gathered here together, it is accurate. When two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, there I am there in their midst. So when we gather together on a Sunday morning like this, God is very much present with us today. And in that sense, this is a house of God. It's not that God is confined here but he does dwell here when we gather together to worship like this. Now, what happens in your home when you sit down with your kids and you open up the scriptures and you pray with them? That becomes right there a house of God. God dwells with you there. And in the context of New Testament temple, Jesus says, I am the temple. He says, destroy this house in three days and I'm going to rise it up. They didn't realize he was talking about himself. And in the context of us, 
who have given our lives to Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. We then, Paul says, become temples of the Holy Spirit. So everywhere you go, you're in the presence of God. So your body is a temple. Romans 12 speaks of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is our spiritual act of worship. So the way in which we worship is this recognition that everywhere we go, we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is with us. His presence is with us. So in that particular context, in terms of guard your steps as you go into the house of God, it's speaking a lot more about just what happens on a Sunday morning. It's speaking about how we live our lives, how we go about living our lives. Guard our steps as you consider whose presence is with you wherever you go. Guard your steps, yes, when you come to worship together like this. But notice he's not wrestling at all with anything that's external. He's not saying when you approach God in worship, make sure you dress nice. God's not so interested in the external. God looks at the heart. So he's speaking in terms of our heart. And we're going to wrestle with that as as we look in terms of what Solomon speaks of here. But think think of heart as we go through this. So guard your steps as you approach, as you worship the Lord. So it's calling you as the worshiper to guard your steps. Now, what does it mean to guard your steps? There's a couple of different ways to, to, to consider this. And one is a more literal way. And that's, again, in terms of temple worship. If you were to look at the stairs that led up to the temple, this is what they look like. So it's a picture on the screen. You can go to the next slide. There it is. Those are the stairs that lead up to the temple. So any worshiper that's coming into the temple, that's the stairs they're going to walk up. What do you notice about those stairs? They're all different. It goes from 12 inches to 35 inches to then 12 inches to 35 inches. Why would they do that? Is that building code? Why did they do that? If you try to run up those stairs, you're going to have a hard time doing it because your rhythm gets thrown off. And so it was intentionally, the stairs were intentionally built. They were hewn into the side of Mount Moriah initially, and I think those are maybe recreated ones. Intentionally created like that to cause the worshiper to stop, to go slow, to ponder who it is that you are about to enter into the presence of. As you're walking up those stairs, you can't move too hastily up them. Otherwise, you're going to fall. You're going to get hurt. And so it forced you to slow down. It forced you to examine your heart, to examine yourself in light of the bigness of the God that you are about to go into the presence of. And the temple itself, everything about the temple was designed to essentially make you feel small, that you get the picture of the bigness of God. So you're going to this giant temple, and the picture is... Everything designed about it was to make you feel small, to have a reverential attitude as you go into the presence of God. So that's kind of the literal step. And the principle out of that is for us to make sure that we are examining our hearts before the Lord. That as we come and and bring our lives as an act of worship, that we are examining our hearts. We are slowing down. We're not rushing too much in life, moving about here and there but we take the time to slow down and remember whose presence it is that we are in 
every single day and to be blown away by that, to be in awe of that, he is going to mention. So to guard your lives in many ways, like Paul had mentioned in Ephesians, to be wise in the way you walk, to live a consistent life, to guard your steps is to say, don't be a hypocrite when you come into the presence of God. Now make sure your life is the same on Sunday as it is from Monday to Saturday. You've probably heard people say before, you know, I have an admiration for Jesus, but I don't like the church. It's full of hypocrites. And the unfortunate reality is there's far too many people who come to church on Sunday to pay their ritual dues to God and feel like that's going to make a difference. The same hands that they're raising to worship are the same hands that they're flipping around and flipping up a finger to someone else in the week. The same words that they are using to sing out to God, be the glory, great things he has done, are the same mouths that are speaking hate or gossip or dishonesty to someone else throughout the week. So this idea of guarding your steps is to be wise in the way you walk. Live a consistent life. Make sure your life is the same from Monday or from Sunday to Saturday all week long. Don't just tell God what you think he wants to hear. Don't think for a second you're fooling the Lord. Moves into the second part of verse 1. He says this. So that, that really is, think of that, that is like an umbrella statement. Now he's going to get into three different times where he gives an exhortation and then why he gives that exhortation. So the first one is this, to draw near to listen is to better than to offer a sacri- the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. So to draw near to listen, what does it mean to listen? It's an important concept that this is going to address here. What does it mean to listen? If I were to say to my kids, are you listening to me? What does that mean? Happened last night. Two of my kids were still up. They, I told them to go to bed 10 minutes before. They're sitting on the couch giggling on their, one of their devices. I'd asked them to go upstairs and get ready for bed. And I said to them, are you listening to me? What does that mean? See, the response from one of them was, yeah, we heard you. <laughs> Is that what I wanted to happen? <laughs> when I say, are you listening to me? It means, are you doing what I'm asking you to do? And so to listen is, the, is to obey. So when God says, listen to what I have to say, he's not just saying, okay, Let it go in your ear and know what it is, but it means to obey, to put it into practice. Same thing when I say to my kids, I've used this illustration before. I want you to go clean your room. And then an hour later, come down and I look up and you didn't clean your room. Like, I know, but I know what you said. You said, clean your room. That's not what I'm asking when I say these things. So to listen is to put them into practice. To listen is to obey. So when God's word calls us to certain things, he's not saying, well, just know what it says. He's saying, obey it, put it into practice. And so to, to, it's better to listen, to obey, than offer a fool's sacrifice, the sacrifice of fools. So what is a sacrifice of fools? He's going to go into talking a little bit about that in terms of someone who makes empty promises, who just speaks empty words. That's a fool's 
fool's sacrifice. They just kind of say what you think God wants to hear and hope that God's going to kind of bless you out of it. In terms of the people of God at the temple, there were many people, we, we know through the scriptures, who were from time to time, rather than doing what God had told them to do and giving their best and giving the right sacrifice, they were bringing what was left over. The animals that no one wanted. The animals that were diseased, and they were bringing those to God. And it's showing a heart that isn't in the right place. It's showing a heart that I'm going to appease God by bringing my leftovers and hope that he's going to do what I want him to do. It's almost like manipulating, like we try to manipulate God. That's a fool's sacrifice. To think that he is going to be, he's going to bless us for doing this kind of thing. For manipulating God. It's like playing games with God. And you notice the next line he says, for they do not know what that they're doing is evil. Why don't they know what they're doing is evil? Because they've been playing games with God for so long, they don't even realize it anymore. The whole sham has just kind of become normalized to them. And they think that just by showing up to church and paying your dues, and you can go live like however you want the rest of the week, and God's going to somehow bless you for living like that. Or to think that I'm just going to give God my leftovers. So I'm going to do everything I can do, take everything I want, and then if, if there's some left over, then I'm going to hand it to God. It's a fool's sacrifice. It's foolish to approach God in that way is what he is saying here. It's this idea of ritual without right heart before God. It's just empty religion and it's vanity. It's meaningless. Smoke. It's a sham. Then moves into the topic of prayer a little bit here. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Fools just talk and talk and talk and fail to listen. Just like as pointless as pointless dreams that we have. So what's he saying? Be not rash with your mouth. Watch what you say. Or in other words, be slow to speak, slow to speak and quick to listen. Listen first. There's an Irish saying that says it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And you can see where he's rooting this in here, that sometimes it's better just to sit and listen. He's rooting it in God in heaven and you are on earth. And that's not a statement of God's so far away, he's not going to hear you. So don't bother talking. That's not what that's saying at all. It's a statement of supremacy, a statement of holiness, that God is not just a better version of you in heaven, but God is so other you. He is holy. And he is perfectly righteous. And so ponder that and let your words be few. Ponder that truth and, and just shut up for once and listen to what he's saying. Stop speaking so much. I think in terms of today, if you wanted to learn how to be a good investor and you had the opportunity to sit down over dinner with Warren Buffett, 
You don't know who Warren Buffett is. I, in my finance and economic studies, oh, the profs talked about him all the time as like the best example of an investor. He's one of the best investors in the world that's alive today. You had an opportunity to sit down with him and learn from him. All this investment advice. You got invited to dinner with him. You show up to dinner and you just go off talking and talking, talking about yourself, talking about your stories, sharing all these things. And you do all the talking. Dessert comes, dinner's over. And at the end of it, you're the one who did 98% of the talking. How foolish would that be? Now think in terms of who God is. There's a time when we need to sit back and stop our busyness. Stop all of our talking. And be in awe of him. And hear what it is that he wants to say to us. Let the words that he speaks in his word speak into your heart. Change the way you live. Sit down with Warren Buffett. You're going to... He does all the talking. You're going to take that investment advice and you're going to put it into practice. The same picture we have with God. To then listen to God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who created you, the one who knows how your life is going to be best lived, the one who knows how you can find joy and happiness. It would be behoove us not to sit in awe of him and listen to what it is that he is speaking to us. To say, this is what to give your lives to. This is how you're going to find Happiness, this is how you're going to find joy. And so this is where he says, let your words be few. God is in heaven. He is majestic. He is holy. He is perfect. So when you come into his presence, you do well to listen more than you speak. Same thing, two ears, one mouth. At least use them in that proportion. But speaking of a a heart of surrender, we can't have this idea that God is going to somehow hear us more if we speak more or if we speak more even eloquently. Jesus addresses this with the Pharisees. The Pharisees stand up and say, I'm so glad I'm not like this person, not like this person. And they're using all of their eloquent words, showing off in front of others all their great vocabulary that they have. And yet, what does Jesus say is the example for us? Don't think by them doing that that God's going to hear them any more, any less. Our example is a tax collector who just simply comes before God and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he is the example that is held up for us by Jesus Christ himself. And it's that heart of surrender, that heart of, I am not God. I don't have all of the answers. God, I want to sit at your feet and I want your teaching, your word, to enter deep within my bones, deep within my heart, that I can put it into practice, that I can live it out. God is in heaven. You're on earth. Make sure you ponder that. Remember that. He moves now into vows. And so essentially he's saying, listen, it's good for you to just be quiet. Now he says, well, if you're going to speak, make some vows. Here's, what's, here, here's, here's some advice for you here. So verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why? And do not say before the messenger, should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? That's in the context of Deuteronomy 16 and some of the blessings and cursings. And Deuteronomy 16 speaks of the work of our hands, coming to God empty-handed and God punishing you as a result, especially in Deuteronomy 27, 28 later on. So in the, in the context of the curse, verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Talk without any action. Speaking words that you don't really mean is just as pointless as the pointless dreams that you have. Now he says here, when you make a vow, don't delay in keeping it. Make sure you pay it. So when you make a vow, make sure you do what you're going to say. It's better, he says, not to make a vow at all. Now, the interesting thing about vows was, vows were never commanded in the scriptures, but there was this kind of allowance for vows that we see happening. And he's saying here, listen, if you are going to make a vow, make sure you keep it. But you know what? Better is just not even to make a vow at all. I think in terms of, of marriage and the marriage vows and what Paul says, listen, it's better for you to stay single. It's better for you not to make those vows than to make vows, especially, that you're not going to keep. It's better not to make vows, but if you're going to make a vow, make sure you keep it. And we often do these kinds of prayers to God. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But we make these kind of conditional prayers to God. And we say, God, if you let me get an A on this test that I didn't study for, I'm going to stop drinking. We make those kind of conditional prayers to God. And then we, we, we write the test, we get it back, we get an A, and, the, and we celebrate with a drink. That's the fool's sacrifice. If you're making a vow, make sure you're going to keep it. And probably the one word, the one time in our culture when you hear that word used a lot is when, referenced it just briefly already, is in marriage. When you stand before God in front of the person that you have decided to marry and you have vowed to love and cherish them in sickness and in hell, for better, for worse, to keep yourself to that person and that person alone as long as you both shall live. If you make that vow, you better do everything you can to keep that vow. And I'm not, I'm not here to shame anyone who's been divorced before because there are very just reasons in the scriptures for divorce. We've talked about that before. But if you make that vow, make sure you do everything in your power to keep that vow. That's a vow that you are making, not just to that person. That's a vow ultimately you are making to God. Now, in our culture, do you know what the divorce rate is in Canada? There's a common statistic that it's 50%. It's actually about 40% now. Part of the reason for that is, is the whole, a whole lot less people getting married and just cohabitating instead. But even at 40%, a 40% divorce rate in the world. And sometimes it's said, well, the divorce rate is the same in the church. Uh, the reality is when you actually take, uh, there's been studies done, Gallup did a study, and within the church, the divorce rate is actually of, among those who are 
active in church, born again believers, the divorce rate is around 25%. So one in four. So it's better than the world, but it's still not great. What, what was really, what, the reason I'm referencing that Gallup study now and what I want to share with you here is it's remarkable once you start incorporating certain spiritual practices in the home, it's amazing what happens to the divorce rate. Among couples who are married, who pray together, who pray in their home with their kids, if there's a prayer time in their home and husband and wife are praying together, do you know what the divorce rate is? One in 1,152. That's 0.08%. That statement, couples that pray together, stay together, is not just a trite statement. So maybe for Valentine's Day tomorrow, one of the best things you can do for your marriage is to spend time in prayer together. Have a prayer time together. Pray for each other. Hear the other's heart. When you make a vow, make sure you keep it. In other words, mean what you say. Let your yes be yes. So he starts off with this umbrella statement, guard your steps as you enter the house of God. He then gives three statements. But then this last line breaks out of how the statements are functioned, how they're worded. And it just breaks out of it to serve as the bottom bracket. It says, God is the one you must fear. But God is the one you must fear. In other words, live with a reverential attitude toward God. That when you put God in his proper place in your life, and it's him that you fear, it's him that you want to please. You're not looking to please man. You're not looking to please anyone else. You're looking to please God, when you have that kind of approach to God, you're going to begin to know what happiness is, lasting happiness, lasting joy. When you put his words above all other words and you say, I want to listen to him and his teaching and apply what it is that God is saying to us through his word. That's the the picture of this here. When we talk about fear of God, there's a number of different ways you can talk about that. One Commentary says trembling trust, to have this tremble before God, that God is holy. And anytime you see anyone enter into the presence of God, look at Moses in the burning bush. What's he have to do? Takes off his sandals and he keeps his mouth shut. And there's this kind of holiness, this kind of trembling as you come before God. Got Isaiah who just says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips when he is face to face with God. He gets a glimpse of that. So remember that there's a part, there is a part of trembling that happens, but then there's also this then part of trust, of knowing that God is good, that yes, he is absolutely terrifying, but he is good. And he showed us his love by sending his son to die for us. If you ever question the goodness of God, look no further than Jesus Christ come for us to die for us. So that trembling trust, this reverential attitude before God, this, this recognizing that we are sinful, we are limited. And yet when we worship God, we're coming into the presence of the one who is all-powerful, who is sovereign, who is perfect in righteousness. And that should cause us to just tremble just a little bit at least. 
And in the context of all of this, you notice there's a lot of talk about speaking and using our mouths in the right way. And it's this picture of that we need God's word to know how to fear God. We need his revelation to know how to approach God in the right way. And so the secret, you could say, to to wise living is not fearing man or what they think of you or what what you think it is that's going to please them, but pleasing God and seeking to honor him with your life, having that kind of fear. And here's what I want to close with, because this is absolutely incredible. When you think in terms of these truths that we're seeing here in Ecclesiastes, God is in heaven. You're on earth. So shut up. That's what he's saying. He is sovereign. He is holy. Now think of what happens through Jesus. What the privilege we have when we come to him. When we come to him in prayer, look at the book of Revelation and the throne room of God, and you have seraphim and cherubim. You have have angels all around his throne. You have living creatures all around his throne. You have powerful beings all around his throne. And through Jesus, the access that we have that the book of Hebrews tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with throne of God with confidence, not arrogance, but with confidence. And so the privilege we have every time we approach God in worship is we get to move past all of the angels, all of the living creatures, all of these powerful beings, and we get an audience with the living God every time we approach him in prayer, every time we approach him in worship. It's an incredible privilege that we have that's been granted to us because of what Jesus has done that we can approach the throne of God in that way and receive mercy and help in our time of need. So we can approach the throne confidently because Jesus died for your sin, your sin that separated you from the holy God. Christ died for that so that you can be reconciled to God. So that you can through what Jesus has done, through his merits, not your own. Enjoy a relationship with God in his presence. These are incredible truths that need to change the way we live. Guard your steps as a worshiper. Fear him. Live with a reverential attitude toward God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word that we have the privilege of of studying together as the church family here. Thank you for your word that speaks into our lives and that reminds us of who you are and the absolute privilege we have of coming into your presence because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, I pray today that we would stand in awe of who you are, be in awe afresh of who you are, 
be amazed again at your greatness and that you invite us as small as we are, as sinful as we are, you invite us to be a part of what you're doing in this world, to to enjoy a relationship with you through what your son has done. I pray today we would stand afresh in awe of those truths. And Father, I want to pray today for marriages that are struggling, for vows that have been made that are not being kept by one or both parties. I pray that you would bring healing and reconciliation in those marriages. Father, I pray that as we approach you, as we live our lives each day, that we would be slow to speak and quick to listen, quick to obey, quick to to, to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, pleasing you with the way we live, seeking to be obedient to your word. Father, make us a church family that together is laying down our lives for the sake of making your son Jesus known. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for this church family. I pray that we together would fear you. Fear you by having a trembling trust of you, knowing that you are good. Father, we thank you again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless. Thank you.